Hi there, I'm Tom Field. I'm Senior Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. Topic of discussion today is cybersecurity and threat modeling, automated tools versus manual methods. My pleasure to be joined by Stephen DeVries, CEO and co-founder of Erius Risk, and Adam Shostak, President of Shostak & Associates. Stephen, Adam, thanks so much for being here with me today. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure to be here. So, gentlemen, an ounce of planning is worth a pound of cure, as they say. Yet, threat modeling is still not a standard practice in all organizations. Why is that? Adam, maybe you can take that first and Stephen follow up. Sure. So I believe the biggest problem is that we make it harder than it needs to be. We have these aspirations for what threat modeling is going to be. It's going to do all of these things. It's going to give the security experts a chance to really delve into what the product does. And we're going to use all of these big methodologies that are waterfalling and help us think like an attacker. And people's heads start to spin. And they allow the perfect, they allow these aspirations to overwhelm what there's time for in the schedule, what there's time for in the budget. And so instead of getting a pound of cure or a ton of prevention, they get nothing at all. Yeah, I, I fully agree with, uh, with with Adam's perspective there. And I think, you know, one thing I would add is, is maybe that what hinders uh, threat modeling is the, the the inertia of existing testing practices where um, application security teams are, they're so used to performing testing that they believe testing is the only thing that you can do in application security. And that just becomes the usual thing to do. Uh, and it becomes industry practice. And threat modeling is I think as a um, as an activity, it's, it's newer than testing. And we don't, we don't see as much, um, I think, adoption in threat modeling because it's newer, because it's the, the, the thing you need to figure out how to do, because not everybody on the team um, understands how to perform threat modeling. And, uh, and I think that also tends to, well, it used to tend to hold it back. And what we have seen uh, in the last year is a, a, a huge increase in the interest in threat modeling and also in security standards that now mandate or recommend threat modeling as a, as a standard form of practice. So what do you find is changing in the market that's causing more companies to adopt threat modeling now? So as I mentioned, the standards is a, uh, I think are a good place for um, where, where threat modeling as a practice becomes a standard practice and doesn't become a, an optional practice that you, that you may want to do. The OWASP top, top 10 is a, is a great example where secure design as point number four in the top 10 only came out last year. Um, the NIST released a standard for the minimum recommended standard for secure uh, develop, uh, verif developer verification of code. Um, and threat modeling is step zero there. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that demonstrates that it's a, it's now an established practice and it, it's not a, a strange new practice that you may want to do here and there. It's now considered really the minimum by, by organizations like the NIST. Let me just add the Food and Drug Administration's new guidance, new draft guidance for cybersecurity and pre-market half of the 50-page document, give or take, is given over to threat modeling. And that's a result of 
years of collaboration between FDA and industry, which I've been honored to be a part of, where we've engaged with medical device makers to ensure that they're able, that they have the readiness things like the MDIC MITRE playbook and threat modeling, which give them the ability to pick this up and do it, but also demonstrate that the practice has grown in maturity enough that the regulators have confidence that when they make these requests of people, it's possible for them to succeed. So gentlemen, as I mentioned up top, automated versus manual. Mm -hmm. Does it have to be 100% one or the other? Nope. <laughs> Easy answer. <laughs> um, but, but to be a little bit more specific, we should automate everything that we can automate. The scale and speed of today's development environments demand it. And so the question is, what can we automate and where do we need human brains to be on the problem? And we see this throughout development work. The, the move is code that runs code. And we do this so that we can apply people's thinking time to the business problems that they face. And the same applies to threat modeling. Let's not threat model your S3 buckets as S3 buckets. We should fix the permissions, please. And we can have technology tell us that. But if what you're working on or what you're working with is, say, medical information, you might have specific requirements for that S3 bucket. Let's put your attention there so that we can do the right things and automate the bits that are repetitive. We had the same question, you know, almost 20 years ago with um, web application testing. And I was I was doing penetration testing and web applications at the time. And this was the first time that the, the tools uh, started coming out to automate some of that work. Um, and as a manual tester, you know, we, we've, I think as, as a group, we felt threatened for about five minutes until we used the tools and realized, well, actually, this makes our lives a lot easier. Um, you know, it, they take care of all the repetitive work. Um, and at the same time, that frees us up to spend more time thinking about the, the valuable human activity. You know, what are those complex business logics um, vulnerabilities that we can find within an application rather than SQL injection and cross-site scripting, which, uh, you know, a machine is, is better at, uh, at finding anyway. Um, and, you know, we, we're just seeing that same thing again applied to um, threat modeling. I think where the difference is is maybe that it's not as obvious um, how a tool is going to help you threat model versus how a tool is going to help you test an, an application. Um, but, you know, automated tools have been around in the threat modeling space for a number of years now. Um, they all work slightly differently. They've, they've all got their own nuances about how they, they help a, a, a person, um, but they do help. You know, they, they take care of that uh, rote, uh, boring work and, uh, and, and they help you focus on the really interesting threats um, where you do need to think about them. So gentlemen, devil's advocate, why even do manual threat modeling when the tooling does exist to do it automated? There are, there are absolutely tasks which, which are repetitive, 
But your unique application, you're bringing new functionality to the world and asking what can go wrong is not something where a tool understands. And let me use an example from a few years ago. Turned out that there were information disclosure threats with fitness trackers where they displayed the paths on which um, deployed military personnel were running. And anyone could go to the fitness tracker website and look at where people were running in their neighborhood and discover where these folks on deployment were running because they started and ended at a military base. Understanding the meaning of the phrase information disclosure as I'm working on that feature is not something where a tool can bring all of the nuance that the world has with it. And so we need a human being to look and say, huh, does this threat matter? Is this manifest in a way that I want to do something about? And that's something which is unique to your business that a human needs to pick up in contrast to some of the more rote elements. And just to be specific about what those might be, for example, if you're working in a big company, has every project threat modeled in the last six months? You can assign a person to go create an Excel spreadsheet where they email or Slack people and record their answers. Tooling can and should pick that up for you. So you have an up-to-date answer every minute of the day, but it can't tell you this is what spoofing looks like in my new system. That's a great example of the um, uh, of, of the fitness tracker with the with the military base because you know thinking about how we implemented automation within the Arias Risk tool, it's very much based on patterns. So patterns of technology, patterns of data flow patterns of the use of that technology. And, and based on those patterns that you enter into the system, uh, Arias Risk will, will come out and say, you know, these are the threats and the controls that you need to, uh, to implement. And um, it's a great example because we, or Arias Risk would be able to identify the patterns in that fitness trackers technology, but it would have no idea that this has, uh, there are special threats attached to this because it's uh, using data from a military base. So um, I think it's a, um, you know, it's, it's quite instructive to think about the context that's often missing from, from tooling. And tooling is great at being able to answer things it knows about. It's not that great in answering things that it doesn't know about and hasn't seen before. Um, and certainly in, in the case of, of Arias Risk, you know, we've got a, a wealth of knowledge in our pattern-based um, uh, knowledge base that's automated, that, you know, can it applies the correct pattern at the right time. But there are going to be times where you do need a, a human interpretation of that and to figure out what is truly unique about my application that isn't, uh, that isn't there in every other application that uses the same technology and the same set of data. There's, there's something different about my app. And that's, uh, that's where you need a, a human input. So flip side of my question, why choose tooling if you already have a team that's capable of threat modeling? 
because you can be a lot more effective um, with that same team if they freed up their time by using tooling where tooling is good to use. So, you know, as with many of these examples, the, the limitation here is people's time and, and the resources you have. Although you have a team of skilled threat modelers, you don't have a team of a thousand threat modelers. So if you did want to maximize uh, the use of, uh, of their resources and, and their time, what you want to do is uh, have them spend that valuable brain power on the problems that really require it and not spend that time on, on doing the, uh, the repetitive tasks. Yeah, just to build on that, People, people are really bad at getting routine work consistently right. And I mean, I know you all, Tom, probably have a checklist that helps you manage what you deliver with a podcast like this. And some steps in that, in that checklist are probably automated to make sure that things run smoothly. And for anything that we do, the more we can take the routine away from people who might make a mistake, the happier we are as organizations. So you've spoken to this to some extent. What are the appropriate use cases for automated and manual? And what can each approach bring you uniquely? So I think the most appropriate use of automation, first and foremost, is status, right? I've got 100 projects running. Where do each of them sit in the pipeline? Have they threat modeled? What's their completion rate on the tickets that have been opened? And on the manual side, on the human side, What's unique here? What is what is the thing that we're shipping? The user story, the business value, and how might that be abused? Yeah, there where we're doing this new exciting delivery of value is the place that we want people to be asking some very simple questions. And, and by the way, we haven't defined threat modeling for that chunk of your audience that is still new to threat modeling, let me define it. It's four simple questions at its heart. What are we working on? What can go wrong? What are we going to do about it? Did we do a good job? And the two in the middle, what can go wrong and what are we going to do about it, are things that you should be asking every sprint, every improvement, every time you're working on a project. And it can be that quick, that easy. And just asking those questions, making space for people to think about what can go wrong is the place where we're always going to have a little bit of manual threat modeling in what we do. I'll name two use cases where um, automation really uh, shines. And the first one is where the threat modeling team is maybe new at the activity. You know, we've seen a lot of organizations have a lot of success with security champion programs. And those security champions uh, on their AppSec teams or sorry, on their dev teams um, act as the, the bridge between that dev team and the, the central security team. And they're responsible for more than just threat modeling, but often threat modeling is one thing that they will do with on, uh, within that team. 
they're not, um, they're usually not, you know, trained security experts. They are developers. They come from an engineering background. So they're fairly new to threat modeling. And what automation can help there is to bring up that, that minimum standard and a minimum level of consistency between their threat models. So it, it essentially acts as a guide rail for them uh, to create good threat models and when, when they do get stuck or if they do have questions they can reach out to to the central team for for assistance um, the other example is when you are doing threat modeling at scale so when you're not if you have a you know a central um, security team they're the only people doing threat modeling and you're threat modeling on two applications you probably don't need uh, automation or, or tooling there uh, where you do need it is if you have a team doing threat modeling and they're threat modeling hundreds of app applications, uh, then it, it becomes, um, as Adam mentioned earlier, really a question of managing all of that. You know, is everybody producing consistent results? What is the status of each project? Um, and another aspect of that is what can we learn across all of those threat models? So if I'm looking across two threat models and I want to figure out well, what can we learn as an engineering organization? Maybe I can see something, but it's going to be difficult for me to see a trend when I'm in a, in a, a total uh, set of two. But if I have a set of a thousand um, and now I want to learn something as an engineering organization, well, there's probably a lot we can learn there. We can figure out, you know, are there common threats across all of them where we can apply a single central control that saves everybody's time and, and reduces our risk? Or we can see where teams are wasting energy, time, time and energy, uh, maybe threat modeling things that don't need to be threat modeled or fixing things that could be fixed in a, in a more time efficient manner. Um, so I think those two are, you know, top of my mind where automation can really help. Adam, I've got a question specifically for you. What's the value of teaching threat modeling principles even when tooling is in place? You know, let me let me flip that question a little bit. What's the value of teaching computer science when we have automation like compilers? When we teach computer science, when we teach things like algorithmic complexity, we give people frameworks for thinking about the development work that they're doing at a level that's higher than the tooling. And, you know, I was reading something by ACM Turing Award winner, Leslie Lamport recently, and he said, no developer ever starts writing code by typing int 32 into an IDE. They've always started at a higher level where they've thought about what is the goal of this code and what do I need to do to achieve it? And we ask the compilers, rightly, to do more and more for us. We ask the frameworks to do more and more for us. And the developer is always working to craft code that meets a complex set of requirements, which are frankly often contradictory. Right, that engineering is the artful way of making trade-offs between unclear requirements. And security is one of those things. And so the reason we want developers to know these principles, to teach them these higher order goals, is so that as they're making this trade-off and making a call about what they're going to type after int32, 
they can include security in those decisions. Very good. Stephen, Adam, one last question. Stephen, I'll start with you first. What's the first step you want our listeners to take on their threat modeling journey? We've thrown a lot at them today. Where should they begin? I would encourage them to have a look at our website and sign up for our free community edition. Um, it will give them a good taste of what uh, automation can do for them in, in their threat modeling journey. It's a, um, uh, our complete knowledge base is available on the community edition and it is free forever. Um, so I'd, I'd encourage them to look on the website and sign up for our community edition. Well said. Adam, same question for you. Well, I would start with the Threat Modeling Manifesto, which Stephen and I are authors of at threatmodelingmanifesto.org. And the Threat Modeling Manifesto contains the four questions. As you continue, I have on my YouTube channel, the world's shortest threat modeling course at LinkedIn. I have a 45-minute introduction to threat modeling course and we've got more training available, but learning these principles, starting to apply them in an agile, lightweight way is so transformative that I really want to encourage people to start today. Great way to leave this. Adam, Stephen, thank you so much for your time and insight today. Very grateful. Thank you. Again, the topic has been cybersecurity and threat modeling, automated tools versus manual. You've heard from Stephen DeVries, CEO and co-founder of Erius Risk. You've heard from Adam Showstack, President, Showstack and Associates. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you for your time and attention today.